It's time to hit the brakes. Welcome to Swerve South. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Swerve South. I'm Jamie Harker. I'm the director of the Sarah Eisman Center for Women and Gender Studies. And I'm here with my friend, Teresa Starkey. Hi, everyone. Associate the associate director. director. I was coming. I realized the <laughs> lag there for a moment. Yes, the associate director. Yes. yes and yes. we have a special guest today, Hillary Colson. Hello. Hillary is a visiting assistant professor of history and gender studies. We're delighted to have her with us. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on to chat with you. And I think it's going to be exciting to be a part of the podcast. I've been listening and I really like what you're doing. So this is fun I to be like here. I like to say welcome to the confessional space. Because there you go. Yeah. The booth. The booth. That's right. Hillary has been so helpful with this. She is her on her own a podcaster, does a mm-hmm. women's history podcast, I think. No, I just do a U.S. history podcast, um, cool. weekly history podcast and incomplete history with a colleague from San Diego. So it's it's really exciting to be in this space, though, that's like official podcaster. I really like it. Yeah, South Docs is cool if you don't know. It is really neat. They're very nice. But yeah, Hillary helped us do liner descriptions of each episode, and so it's been really awesome. She's, she's, she's helping us step up our game. Yeah, yeah. she's she's being very complimentary, but she actually is the one who knows what she's doing, and we're just following in her wake, which we like. So, Hillary, what we usually do when we have people on it, we want to talk a little bit to you about the work you're doing and the research, but we're also just interested to tell us a little bit about where you grew up, and kind of how you got interested in doing women's history. Well, it's a long story, but I'll try to keep it as short and as we're possible. Ready we're ready. Wait, I'm leaning back. <laughs> we are in the confessional. Let's go. Uh, well, Tell I'm us. from Southern California. I was born and raised in San Diego, and I was always interested in the law. I really wanted to be a lawyer when I was a little kid. Um, I went to my first grade career day dressed up with a little briefcase and everything, And so I had always thought, well, I'm going to be a lawyer ever since I was a little kid. And as I started going through school, I majored in things that I thought this would be good to go to law school. I was applying to law school. Everyone was so proud Hillary's going to be a lawyer. But along the way, I just started loving history. I was taking history classes um, in college. I went to University of San Diego. And I took my very first women's history course. It was a 7.30 a.m. course. I loved it. And I just, I fell in love with studying history. And I started thinking about what routes could I take that would allow me to do something that I love so much. Because I had been working for the district attorney's office in San Diego, and it was kind of crushing me, you know. (laughs) And I was just a student worker, but to see how the attorneys went about their day, day to day, I noticed, like, I don't really want to do this, you know. I mean, I could move up, I could make money. Um, I could have a successful career, but I just didn't love it. I didn't love seeing what they did on a day-to-day basis. It was just kind of like soul-sucking. And so I started just diving into history, and I didn't tell my parents that I applied alongside law school. I applied to Ph.D. programs in history, and I kind of kept that a secret. And I got into law school, and I got into Ph.D. programs, and I – kind of sprung it on them. Surprise, I'm going to go to get a PhD in U.S. history. And they're uh, 
they were a little disappointed. <laughs> I love the idea of going to a graduate program in history as being like the bad girl thing to do in this right, scenario. Right, right, right. But like, no, not I'm going to be a groupie and follow a yeah, band or any yeah, of that. Like, yeah. That was my major rebellion. <laughs> really, it was. I mean, I had done everything by the book right. since I was a kid. I mean, that was just kind of my forte. And when I said I was going to do that, my parents. They said, well, you know, they were supportive. They're very nice people, but they just thought you're not going to be able to be successful doing that. So they were concerned. Yeah. But. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, was it a specific history class that caught your attention? Because uh, as an undergrad, right, I, I did history. And I'm, and for me, it was a professor named Chuck Steppen. If you're out there in the ether and you're listening, you really shaped my life in profound ways. And I know I tell you whenever I get to see you. But, yeah, just having... Having somebody, as you say, open up like the world of history to you and and uh, a wow moment. That's a great question. And the very first person who comes to mind is Victoria De La Torre. Uh, she was my 7.30 a.m. professor oh, okay. in okay. Um, American Women in History. Yeah. And then I had back-to-back history courses with Dr. De La Torre. And it was American Women in History and then an elective Wicked Women in History Wow. I okay. would have killed to take that yeah, class as an undergraduate. Oh, me too. It just awakened everything in me. Yeah. 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 Let's was... pause for a minute and appreciate our mentors because I really like this. You know, for me, it was Dr. Gloria Cronin who at Brigham Young University who since retired, but I just took a modern American lit class. But she was challenging and she talked about gender and she did all these things. She was the first person who ever said to me, you should go to graduate school and be a professor. No one had ever told me I could do that or – and made that possible, no, and you know? You're, you're, and I was like, and I was like, oh, I really want to. She's like, you should do it. And like, it gave me the confidence to no, do it. No, and you're right. And when you talk about mentors, and as I said, Chuck Steffen taught American history, Georgia State University, Concrete Campus, uh, that he was the first professor. I would sit in the back of the classroom, and he was the first professor that wrote on my paper, I really want to hear from you more. And it terrified me because I never talked in class, and I was always the one that sat in the back. And I remember going to his office and 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 um, had this, like, meltdown explaining why I don't talk. But, uh, yeah, he put me on the traje- that trajectory and also made me realize that I could do interdisciplinary work by encouraging me to think about history but also weave in film studies, which I was also doing as well, and thinking about that these two things weren't necessarily mutually exclusive, right, that there was a way to do this kind of, like, boundary crossing. So, yeah. Yeah, but now I truly covet your, you know, early morning class and then ending it, you know, with wicked women, right? So I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And, you know, the the mentor thing was huge for me. I was the first person in my family to go to college. um, And that wasn't, you know, my parents weren't um, purposefully not trying to mentor me. They just didn't have that experience. And so Dr. McLean, Molly McLean, she was my advisor in interdisciplinary humanities. She was the first person to tell me, you know, you could get your doctorate. I was like, what? Well, don't I have to get my master's first? And she, I mean, she explained the whole process to me. Nobody had ever done that. And so I always think about that when I'm teaching. And I love those opportunities to mentor students myself, knowing that there are other people who are just like me or and and different than Mm -hmm. me, but that that needs somebody to give them that boost to tell them, I want to hear from you more or, you know, speak out in class or you can do this. I mean, that's just, that's why I love doing what I do. And, you know, working for the district attorney just wouldn't have done that. Well, that's really funny because after um, my graduate 
right school experience. I went and worked in bankruptcy. I worked for an attorney and he was a friend, right? But he did bankruptcy attorney and it was and it was so crushing for me too, even though he tried to always be fair. Mm-hmm. I remember one time going to a court procedure and I had it was someone who was filing bankruptcy and we represented the creditor and there was this moment where this man was sitting in um one of the uh benches in the courtroom and he had this large manila folder right accordion folder with all his important papers in it and i had to ask him like intrusive things about this terrible moment that he finds himself in and like do you have insurance on your home and all of these types of things and uh and then he says i really i don't want to be here and when he said that i i inside i was like I don't want to be here either. And so in oh that and, and so in that moment I fe- I was like, "Oh, this is where suddenly like the we, we we it's really easy to see people as um these file or these kind of case numbers, but here was a man who was filing for bankruptcy not because he's trying to, you know, work the system, but because he's ha- he's experiencing this situation, right? And mm-hmm. finds himself in it. And so that was like one of those moments where I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be this person that's doing this. And um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so crushing. It, so, yeah, so, 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 so crushing. Way. I was just thinking that like that, that experience of you not wanting, you know, finding that soul crushing in an interesting way fed into, I think, the the project you started doing when you were in graduate school. Absolutely. Like, kind of like, what was it about that? Could you talk a little bit about yeah. how it evolved? So there is, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, right? Is I study the prison system. I study the yeah. judicial system in the early Republic United States. And I am really fascinated by institutions, by institution yeah. building at the state level and at the federal level during the early Republic era. And I'm interested in it because I always wonder, how did we get here? How is our prison system like this? How is it that we incarcerate so many people in this country? How is it that there is such racial and class disparity within that prison system? And I just started asking all of these questions. Um, Some of it was also rooted in though that I come from a law enforcement family. So I mentioned I'm the first person to go to college, but I'm also one of the first people to not be a police officer. My parents were both police officers um, and I I knew I didn't want to go down that path, and they didn't want that for me either. But I had a lot of questions about what they did, why they did it. Um, You know, what there you know a lot of times people say that when you do research, it turns into me search, right? Mm -hmm. And and there's a part of that for sure. And I, I would qualify all of my studies by saying that I come from this law enforcement background, but it was mostly my experience working with the DA and seeing how small mistakes that somebody can make in a moment of not thinking could just ruin their life. And and what does that mean in a historical aspect? How did we get to make laws the way that they are, to imprison people in the way that we do? Who came up with the idea of putting people in cages as a punishment? Because this is a relatively new thing, um, historically speaking, right? We're talking like 200 or so years of long-term confinement for commission of a crime, um, which was an improvement, they believed, on corporal punishment, which had been part of the bloody codes of England. In the, um, and then in the early United States, we, of course, did uh, implore, uh, excuse me, um, we did use corporal punishment, but there was a reform effort that started happening. So I started asking questions about how did we come up with this? What is this reform effort? 
And the first question that I did ask that brought me here is, where did women go to prison before there were women's prisons? There was no such thing as a woman's prison. So I just kept asking, well, where did they go to prison? Where did they go to prison? And it took me further and further and further back where I discovered that women were in men's prisons for many years. Um, before there were even matrons, uh, women were confined in facilities designed for men. And so I just was curious about how women experienced prison. Um, a lot has been written about prisons and men in prisons, and especially the early Republic era, particularly in the northern regions. Um, so regionally speaking, there's been a lot of study about Pennsylvania, about New York, uh, the silent system, the solitary system, Quaker reform efforts in the 1790s, all very important and all foundational to understanding the questions I started asking, but not a lot about women. How were women punished? Where were women confined? Um, and what sorts of experiences did women have in prison? What I love about this is how so much this started with asking questions, right? Yeah. Like, and not accepting what is as status quo, but like this came to be for a reason. It didn't just happen. Um, and when you ask those questions, amazing things start to emerge. So I know I'm asking you to distill all of your research into a couple of pithy sentences, and I apologize for that. But when you ask those questions, you know, where were the women and, and what was different about women's experience? Can you give us a couple of interesting things or provocative things that you learned after asking those questions? Yeah, so after asking those questions, my committee members, when I was writing my dissertation, yeah. were intrigued because they thought there hasn't been a lot asked about women. And I was set out to do a comparative analysis of New York and Pennsylvania, but so much had been written about those facilities. Um, and there were certainly women confined in the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. But one of my dissertation chairs, or advisors, excuse me, um, I'll always remember, speaking of mentorship, she said, what about the South? What are questions you can ask about what's going on in the South? And indeed, what is yeah. going on? <laughs> can so, I insert Swerve South yeah, title of the podcast? That okay, was going to be my little joke, right? <laughs> so I hit the brakes and I swerved yes. south. I did. And I started because there's not a lot written. There's this common misconception that prisons were created in the north, regions of the north. And while it is true that Auburn and New York and Eastern State are, and Walnut Street Jail in Philadelphia are kind of these foundational um, methods of confinement and the Quakers are very involved, Virginia had a penitentiary, 1797. Hmm. And when I started asking questions about women, I saw that women were confined there. So some of the experiences of women, and this is one of the discoveries in my research, is that women did go through the system in Virginia but it wasn't white women. And it, that's not surprising, right? So we have free black women who were confined in the Virginia penitentiary, but more shockingly that most people don't know is that slaves actually filtered in and out of the state penitentiary system. Um, most people believe that uh, justice was meted out on the plantation, and that's most certainly, of course we know though in like Virginia, there aren't big plantations. Um, most of the production in Virginia has done tobacco, domestic mm -hmm. servitude. And so anytime there was a crime um, or an accusation of a crime, 
the budding prison system in Virginia kind of served as, I kind of call it a wheel and a spoke system. So the spokes being the jails and the penitentiary in Richmond, Virginia as being kind of um, the, um, the center of that. And they were trying to make it a thing, right? And it's really shoddy, not well built not well, not just not well constructed physically, but abstractly not well constructed. Um, there's no plan for it. And there's no windows. Um, there's no sewage system. Uh, sewage is dumping off to the side of the penitentiary running down into the James River. But they just start confining people there. And when we think about how are prisons so bad today, it's like they've always been that way. Right. They've always been bad. Yeah. There's never a moment that you can look back nostalgically on prisons and say, gee, I wish the prison were like that. And and so many people are focused on men's experiences within prison, and that's very important. But the questions about women were what really brought me, you know, um, a lot of discovery. So one thing about women in prison um, I found in the records that women were being impregnated in prison, uh, facing, an, say, a lifelong sentence. Eight years into the sentence, a woman has a baby, and it's on the records. Well, where did this baby come from? Who's the father of this baby? You dig a little deeper and you find out that the woman is removed and her baby is removed from the prison, and she goes and works in the warden's house. Is the warden the father? Maybe. Right. So you start uncovering just a, an entirely different experience that women can and do have when incarcerated. They perform different labor. Um, oftentimes they're weaving. If there are work um, teams, they're out doing laundry for the work teams um, who are on state projects. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, the whole the whole specter of sexual violence and rape that that mm -hmm. suggests without ever even being identified um, which is something that, that is ongoing, I think is, is kind of chilling where it was sort of a, magically she had a baby, yes, right? And then right. we just made this adjustment as we go. Yes. In the records, it would just say, you know, so-and-so prisoner had a baby on this day. The baby's name is this. Um, another aspect of that though, is pre-1865, children were raised in the penitentiary until the age of five. And then when they were five years old, they would be sold into slavery. Hmm. And so there's another experience related to women where it's children who are also involved in the system. And I've also seen children in the penitentiary as young as 10 incarcerated and performing labor and working within the institution. Right. So it's not just um, women. It, it's also children, but they're so, um, they're so intertwined yet so understudied. And, and one of the reasons they're understudied is the information – is sparse. Um, particularly in Virginia's case, a lot of the records were destroyed by fires at multiple times. Most people shy away from that institution because they're just like, I can't, you know, there's just not enough there. But if you dig in some unexpected places, um, House of Delegates reports, Virginia State House reports, um, Senate journals, all this kind of stuff, you start kind of piecing together a little bit more information about this institution and what women's experiences were in that particular space. Yeah. 
What's really cool about this, I'm thinking about a book like George Chauncey's Gay New York, so right. much of which depends on, on, on arrest records and court records. Mm -hmm. um, because there weren't these other records of these folks that you only see them erupting in these disciplinary venues. But what it means is you're getting a vision of people who are seen as expendable mm -hmm. in yeah, society right. and that's how they're right. treated right. and how women are assumed not to even be part of that conversation that they are a woman of color and the different all the all the multiple tentacles of the carceral state um you know what i would imagine you would put mental institutions into that no, as well that, that was the other thing when hillary's talking you're for, thinking about possibly for white women right, you know yeah, especially rather than the prison yeah, but like yeah. they're all multiple ways of control and, and containing you know, and I suspect um, being drafted into the army or in otherwise, you know, being indentured servant or other places are also probably part of this. Um, I'm wanting to jump more recently, though I don't want to stop you from going. I was thinking about sort of two contemporary moments. One is Orange is the New Black, which is obviously, you know, not the time period you're talking about, but in a really interesting way made women's experience in prison visible and central for maybe the first time, the idea that women are there and what happens and a lot of things you're describing, being impregnated in prison, the kinds of behavior, all you know, the behavior that happens with guards and all of that is depicted in, in that. And I'm wondering on one side, you know, whether that has led to an interest or a different way for students to encounter or engage what you're talking about. The other is the, the riots and the, the deaths at Parchman that just happened. Um, and the massive kinds of problems that have come to light um, and the reaction of the government, which is to cut more and, and deny that there's a problem, um, both either in whatever order you want to talk about. I'm just thinking about the ways you can apply the kind of historical work you're doing. How do we get here? What does that tell us about, you know, either this sort of eruption in pop culture of recognizing women and children? Mm -hmm in prisons, but also the ongoing, really dangerous, really horrid conditions that we continue to tolerate as a, as a society and a culture. Yeah, well, people are paying attention to prisons, finally. I mean, we have Orange is the New Black, which is pop culture, but it gets people thinking. It gets mm -hmm. people talking. Um, most recently, a documentary, the uh, 13, that mm -hmm. came out about the, the 13th Amendment and the relationship to the prison system. Um, and I think it's a ripe time to have the discussion. So I can engage students by saying, you know, stuff about Orange is the New Black and um, talking about mass incarceration in, in the modern sense. But where I, you, you know, you can kind of pique their interest in that way or, or even an audience, right, not just students, but anybody who's talking about research. Um, a lot of people have watched Oz Orange is the New Black, um, Prison Break, you know, a bunch of different shows that the American mind has always been sort of fascinated by prisons and by crime. Um, but I would say more recently, there's been more focus on reform. Um, even celebrities have been, got, been getting involved in prison reform. Um, I don't want to name any names, but <laughs> there have been a lot of celebrities that are, that are interested. And so that piques the interest of the general public. And it allows for conversations to happen. But then where I come in is like, let's ask more questions about how we got here. Right. How did we get here? And that's where I like to say I study institutions. Because you're absolutely right to say that asylums are mostly where women are. And historically, that's the study that we've done. Because these institutions were gendered, 
women go to asylums, men go to prison. We put people, undesirable people, people on the fringes of society, people with um, not a lot of money, uh, whatever range of problems, we put them in institutions right. and they're gendered. But women have always been in prisons, yes. too. And men were in asylums and, and people of color asylums. were in asylums. Yes, like there's an intersectionality. With those, when you do those studies and don't just make those assumptions, it's really it's remarkable. Right. Well, and then I also think about juvenile detention centers, right? right? The way in which – and, and and that becomes sort of an own its own block based on age, right? Mm-hmm. So suddenly thinking about these things um, and not being – and it makes me think of our own contemporary moment in terms of incarceration – in terms of thinking about, like you said earlier, not being able to pay your bills, right? Mm-hmm. That suddenly you can't pay your parking tickets or you do these things. Well, which suddenly... is another recent story that we're, I think, the only but, state now that incarcerates people but, but, for but, not but, paying their but bills. But then it, also, it yeah. also is connected, and it, it started in the conversation, this idea about institutions, right? The institutionalization, right, of things, and even poverty, right? And that's yes. why I was even thinking about working, right, going to a bankruptcy court and what that means and how do we stigmatize, right, mm-hmm. the debtor mm-hmm. and what does that mean and um, the punishments that are allocated, right, for that. And, of course, thinking about early American history, how certain states were, right, <laughs> destination for for the debtor. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, and thinking about institutions in the early republic, the almshouse. Yeah. You see a lot of records and a lot of overlap between people who are in the almshouse, between people who are in the jail, who then right. maybe were transferred into more of like a prison setting. In Which the means we talk century. about orphanages and foster 100%. care as a part of this right. system yes. as well. It's, Absolutely. It's the state and federal institutionalization that occurs. And so my study of institutions, it it branches out. There are a lot of fingers to it, right? And and just thinking about how we develop institutions and the stigmatization that we have towards some but not others. And I've been studying education recently. I mean, I've started really getting into thinking about higher education and how that as an institution has oppressed but also elevated uh, depending on, you know, the group that we're talking about. And in mm-hmm. thinking particularly about the University of Mississippi, there are fantastic projects going on here, thinking about the history of slavery and the institution of slavery and how slavery was used to build this institution. Mm-hmm. That slaves built this institution, labored in this institution, and never had the benefit of attending this institution for educational purposes until... 100 over 100 years later you have black students who are finally admitted the legacy of the slaves who built this institution and it fascinates me the overlap that you can see in the way that the state can create these categories and then there's the overlap of undesirable perhaps people who are building the good things for you know, privileged white middle class men to attend. And and this university was built with that in mind. Mm-hmm. And the people who labored to build this university were the same people who were being put through different institutions that were stigmatized. Uh, again, the institution of slavery, prison system, um, asylums, mm-hmm. almshouses, those sorts of things. So the interplay between institutions is also something that really fascinates yeah. me. And the 19th century is ripe for that. Yeah. yeah. This work is so great. I mean, yeah. I feel like I want to make a plug. There's so much great work going on with the carceral state yes. and prisons right now at the University of Patrick Alexander, who's my colleague mm-hmm. uh, in English and American Studies, 
who has done a kind of long-term prison program teaching at Parchman. Mm -hmm. Garrett Felber in History, who was hired a couple of years ago, who just did a huge conference on this very topic. And you here talking about gender and the way institutions are overlapping. It's a, If you're doing this kind of work, it's a very exciting time to be at the university. I will say that. Um, I want to give a plug to Hillary, who's teaching for us. We're really yes. grateful. Yes. Teaches the introduction to gender studies and is also teaching gender studies methodology this spring. Um, and maybe again next year, I'm hoping, we'll talk about that. Uh, we're delighted to have you with us in the department and have you here at the University of Mississippi. So thank you for yes, being here. so great. Thanks thank so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. Our pleasure. Well, we will be having more of these, I yeah. hope, uh, conversations. But for everyone listening, we'll catch you next time on Swerve South. Bye. <laughs>